That's an amazing little phrase there. Keep, keep your Bibles open. Uh, verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. It's not really what you expect in the Bible. You expect God to be big and distant and, uh, and us to be kind of, you know, serving and obeying. And yet God is saying, in that day, you will call me my husband. We're going to come uh, back to Hosea, so keep, keep your Bibles open there. We're thinking about the story of the Bible, big story, and we're thinking about it over the course of four weeks. And where we started a couple of weeks ago, we were thinking about the fact that God is a giving God, and out of his givingness, there's a word, out of his givingness, he created everything. Out of his overflowing uh, gift, uh, his overflowing generosity, he created everything that exists, And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. And so God created everything, humanity, uh, kind of the the peak of that, the pinnacle of that. And then immediately we rebelled. We spurned God's love. We spurned his generosity. We said, we don't want you to be God. We want to be God. We want to be in charge and uh, just leave it with us. And where we would have expected God to say, enough with these creatures, let me make some different ones. Instead, this giving God chose to lean in and give promise, promise of deliverance. He gave the promise back in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, that there would be the seed of the woman, this male child, this human, who one day would defeat the rebellion, would crush the serpent, would defeat death. And so all the way through the Old Testament, there's this line like a a red ribbon running through that we're tracing the anticipation of the coming deliverer. And finally, we get to the New Testament and Jesus arrives, the one that was promised. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That was week one. Then last week, we thought about how God prepared the world for the arrival of his son. And this uh, thing that was set up that we call the Old Covenant was a sort of a system designed not to fix the problem, but to point to our need for a solution to the problem. The Old Covenant with its uh, uh, sacrifices and uh, the, the tabernacle and all these kind of Old Testament type details, the law, it was given to show Israel and broadly to show humanity, you need God to do something because you cannot sort the mess yourselves. Your hearts do not want to please him. Our hearts are stony before God. We, we, we reject him and we spurn him. We need new hearts. Uh, God puts his presence in the midst of his people, but they can't come into his presence because there's a distance. There's a separation. It's designed to show that we need something we don't have, the spirit of God. And there's all the law, not to show us how to live perfect lives, but to show us that we cannot live and we do not live perfect lives. And there's this guilt, this black cloud of guilt hanging over us. And so all through the Old Testament, there's this preparation going on for the coming of Jesus who would bring in the promised new covenant. A covenant that would involve the forgiveness of sins and giving us of the spirit of God and the transformation of our hearts from stone to living hearts that desire to please God. That's the big picture, the big story of the Bible. And today we're going to add a layer onto that that is, uh, for those of you that remember, it's like going from black and white to color TV. I don't quite remember, although actually I do remember because we did have a black and white TV growing up for a few years. I remember watching Adam's Family in black and white, uh, which I think it was anyway. But uh, when we switched to color, suddenly everything seemed different, especially the snooker. 
You know, with color, suddenly there, there's a richness. It's exactly the same stuff, but there's a richness. And it's like, uh, today I want to turn up the color as we think about the big story of the Bible. And I'm just going to tell you, uh, very simply, the big story of the Bible is all about one thing. The story from beginning to end is the story of a marriage. The language of covenants, old covenant and new covenant is the language of marriage covenants. Covenants are different to contracts. Uh, We've heard a lot about the redefinition of marriage in the news recently and uh, who gets to be married to who. But actually the nature of the covenant itself is important. Biblically, a marriage is a covenant where two people are united together forever. A few years ago, a European country decided to have renewable marriage contracts. Every seven years, you'd agree and you'd sign again, or you'd walk away. That's not a marriage, at least not in God's terms. A covenant is not a contract. It's not about your performance. It's not about are you good enough and can you live up to it. It's about a commitment that is forever. And that's what God wants to do with humanity. God wants to be united with us in a forever commitment. And it goes from cover to cover. If we had time, we could take a long time, we could go through all the books of the Bible and we could see time and time again how marriage is the great theme that is weaving its way through everything. Just a couple of examples right at the beginning. When God created everything, the birds and the the flowers and the the, uh, fish and the land animals and, and then humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, when you read through the creation account, you come to the, uh, the crescendo. And the crescendo of the creation account is that moment where Adam is there and God brings Eve to Adam. And he's blown away by the beauty of this new creature. She's exactly what he, he, he needs, what he longs for, what he desires. And in that moment, he explodes into poetry and then God makes a comment. He says, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's God's commentary on the crescendo of the creation account. And if all we had were the first two chapters of the Bible, we'd get to that point and we'd say, wow, isn't that amazing? That all all of this creation, everything that God has intended and everything that God has planned kind of comes together in this wedding. It's exciting if you're a wedding photographer. It kind of gives justification for your job. It's an exciting thing to think about. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. That's why, why marriage is something that we long for. It's why marriage in a fallen world is something that can hurt so incredibly uh, more than anything else when it goes wrong. Marriage, in all of its richness, in all of its complexity, it makes sense. That was God's design. But then you fast forward to the other end of the Bible. Past the time of Jesus, uh, 30 years past when Jesus went back to heaven. And the missionary Paul writes a letter called the Ephesians to, uh, to the Ephesians, funnily enough. And he writes this letter to them and he's describing to them the wonder of who God is and what God's done. And the privileges that are ours in, in the gospel, in this good news that we can be in relationship with God. And then he gets practical. And in the practical section, he works through relationships, for example, parents and children. He talks about employees and employers or slaves, masters. And he talks about husbands and wives. 
And he gives instruction to wives and instruction to husbands. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's what we heard right back at the beginning. And then he adds a comment that that is startling. He says, this is a profound mystery. Now, mystery, when Paul uses the word, is a, something that was a secret that has now been made known. So it's not like a, ooh, whodunit kind of mystery. It's a formerly unknown or unclear, now revealed truth. This is a profound mystery. This man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And you kind of go, well, it's not that profound, is it, Paul? And then he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And for the past 2,000 years, people have said, does it? What? I I go back and you read Genesis again. You look at Genesis 1 and 2 and you say, I'm sorry, but that is clearly talking about Adam, Eve, marriage, future sons leaving future parents to be united to future spouses, marriage. How's that talking about Christ and the church? Paul says that that was a mystery and it's now been revealed that actually the crescendo of creation was pointing to the crescendo of all reality, which is that God's plan is to bring out of a sinful world a bride for his son. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of a marriage. There's lots of places we could go. Lots of places where that's talked about in the early books of the Bible, God's view of marriage, God's marriage wedding, if you like, with Israel out in the wilderness. Later on, the prophets look back and talk about that as Israel in her youth like a bride and and there's a feast and so on. We could look at the examples of where it went wrong and how when they rebelled against God and they worshipped like the golden calf, for example, that was considered spiritual adultery because It was such a a ripping apart of this uh, incredibly significant relationship. We could go all the way through the Bible. We could go into the, the prophets and see time and time again how the themes of marriage are used. And and so that's where we are going, just for a little bit, to the book of Hosea. And what we're looking at in Hosea chapter two is one of the new covenant anticipations. This is one of those places where God is saying In the future, I am going to do something new. I'm going to recreate, I'm going to reestablish the marriage between God and humanity. There's some well-known passages, uh, Jeremiah 31, there's lots of them in Ezekiel, there's there's, uh, multiple ones in Isaiah that are looking at the new covenant. And if you look at them, you'll discover that in almost every case, the language of marriage is used. But we're going to look at Hosea just for a few minutes, and then we're going to jump to the New Testament and see how this is fulfilled in Christ. Hosea was given a horrific calling. He was a prophet about 800 years before Jesus, and God called him and said to him, not only do I want you to speak for me, I want you to experience what I experienced, so I want you to go and get married. And you think, great, that's a positive. Wish God would tell me that. But then he says, I want you to marry... A woman who is given to unfaithfulness. 
A woman with a certain kind of career, they call it the oldest career, a career that you would never choose to marry into. And so he took Gomer as his wife. And then they had children and God told them the names of the children and the names were depressing too. It was Jezreel anticipating warfare and judgment. And then the next child was a a daughter. Call her No Mercy. No Mercy, are you serious? Yeah, No Mercy. Call her No Mercy because I've had it up to here with the unfaithfulness of my people. And then they had a son. Call him Not My People. Not My People. That's not in our baby name book, Lord. It is now. No mercy, not my people. You're married to a harlot. Right, now you know what I'm experiencing. Right. Can you imagine that? Hosea, I think, had one of the toughest callings. It's a fascinating book. I wish we had time. Sometime we will go through the whole thing, passage by passage, because it's an absolutely stunning uh, minor prophet in the Old Testament. But in chapter 2, the bit that Andy read to us, God is looking forward and he's anticipating the time when he's going to make this mess right. Not just for Hosea, but for all the people. Look at it with me Uh, again. For example, verse 1. We didn't read this one. But in verse 1, there's this change of tone where God says, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Okay, that sounds positive. And then he goes on and talks about the mother of these children and he talks about her unfaithfulness and how uh, the nation has gone off and done everything that they possibly could to be unfaithful to him. But then you come down to verse 14 and suddenly the, the passage becomes incredibly sweet. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Notice in verse 15, he talks about how she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so, so God's looking back to the time when the nation was born out of Egypt, and in the wilderness, she was like a, like a young woman. And he drew her to himself, and he, he, he drew her into a marriage relationship. And it all looked so good. And then almost immediately she was unfaithful to him. And now God's saying, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to allure her. Can you imagine being Hosea with a wife who's gone off and been with lots and lots and lots of others. In fact, all the others. And and it's like God is saying to Hosea, "What, what I'm going to do is like asking you to go find her and woo her and romance her and give her flowers, interrupt her, whatever she's doing, give her some roses, give her a Valentine's card, tell her you love her, play her some music, sing her a song. I want you to win her heart back. We can't even begin to imagine that, can we? On a human level. And God says, that's what I'm going to do with a humanity that has rebelled against me and gone off with every other option. And then we come to verse 16. In that day, in the future, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And not my Baal or Baal. They'd gone off after these other false gods called the Baals, the the kind of power gods of the Canaanites. And God says, no more of that. You're not going to know their names anymore. You're going to refer to me as my husband. 
And then drop down to verse 19. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me. Look at these terms now. In righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, in faithfulness. God here is describing a truly glorious and wonderful marriage. And how is that possible if the wife is so unfaithful? If her life is so hideously gross, how is it possible that this kind of betrothal could exist? It's only possible if God is very, very good. It's only possible based on his character, not on hers. And that's true for us, isn't it? When we think about the gospel, the good news that we can be in relationship with God, it's not ever based on what we've done. In fact, we look at what we've done, the way we've acted, the things we've thought, the things we've said, the things we've imagined saying and imagined doing, and and it just feels gross. It feels uh, terrible, rebellious, sick, disgusting, and yet God in his grace and his mercy says, I will betroth her to me. In, In righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy and in faithfulness and the result of what God is going to do comes at the end of verse 20 little phrase so easy to skip and you shall know the Lord that's powerful right there and you shall know the Lord the word know here is not just a a mental knowledge of You will know facts about me that you can use in a pub quiz. It's not saying that. Knowing the Lord in this context here is about an intimacy and a connection and a tightness. It's the language of marriage. Right back at the beginning, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. It's a truly intimate and connected term. And God is describing his relationship with a sinful people. And he's saying that in that day... You shall know the Lord and you shall call him my husband. As you get down to the end of the passage, it's beautiful how he reverses what he said in chapter 1. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he, that person, those people shall say, you are my God. That's just Hosea 2. That's just one example. But it's typical. It's not abnormal and obscure and kind of where did you dig that up from. This is typical of the prophets as they anticipate what God is going to do. They talk about it in terms of a new covenant and they talk about it in terms of a marriage between God and humanity. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they're all using this language. I suppose the challenge that kind of should come into our minds there's the obvious one which i've already mentioned which is how could god do that when we are so gross why would god want that when we are so sinful we're so rebellious we're so full of hate towards him but then there's a second question which is also quite an important one hang on a minute how is it even possible let's say that god does want to marry us fair enough that's up to him But hang on a second, he's God, we're human. He's creator, we are creatures. How is marriage possible? I may really like my pet goldfish, doesn't mean I can marry it yet. Legally, probably will be able to at one point. But I may really like my car, 
doesn't mean I marry it. How can the creator marry the creature? So we fast forward 800 years. We turn over the blank page to the New Testament and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John introduce us to Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has forever been with the Father, but at this moment in time became human, fully God, fully man, fully one, forever, for what purpose? Well, he had to become one of us to reveal the Father to us. It's true. Fair enough. Yeah, it was for revelation. Jesus became one of us so that we could know what the Father is like. But it's more than that. He's fully God, fully one. uh, Sorry, fully God, fully man, fully one forever for the rescue, right? For the sake of redeeming us. He, He had to be one of us to pay the price on the cross for our sin so that we could then be brought back into a relationship with God. Yeah, that's true. But there's another reason why he had to become fully God, fully man, fully one, forever. And that was for the sake of marriage. If God the creator is going to be united in marriage with humanity the creature, then God has to become one of us. That's what Christmas is all about. The word of God who was from the beginning with God, who created all things... He became flesh and dwelt among us. He became one of us so that as a person who is fully God but also fully human, it creates the possibility that two like beings can be brought together, humanity and human. God, human, and humanity brought together in marriage. Turn with me to John chapter 3. We'll just look at a couple of passages very briefly. Uh, And this is, uh, I think, on page 888. Just to see that this whole theme of marriage carries on right into the New Testament. It wasn't something that was forgotten in the, the kind of mists of time. And so Jesus came, and as he began his ministry, he had this kind of weird Old Testament prophet type person, John the Baptist, declaring that Jesus was the coming Messiah. And John the Baptist came. And after a while, John the Baptist kind of lost his following. There was a, a dispute that arises near the end of chapter 3 of John where, where the, the, the followers of John the Baptist come to him and they say, hey, hey, John, you remember how it felt like the whole of Jerusalem was lining up in the wilderness to come and be dunked by you here in the River Jordan? Yeah? Well, they've, they've kind of dwindled to a trickle now. There's, there's almost nobody here. We say next and we wait 20 minutes. Like, it's not happening anymore, John. And now the crowds have gone off after that other one, after Jesus. John has gone from having a huge Twitter following to almost nothing. He's gone from being massively significant to being finished. And so his response, I think, is one of the most beautiful speeches in John's gospel. John 3, starting at verse 27. Page 888 or 889 in the Black Bible there. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. Now notice verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. See, even when John the Baptist is talking about Jesus, he uses that marital language. He's the bridegroom. And so the bride is going after him. I'm just the best man, so I am totally cool with that. There's always a weird wedding if the best man is the center of attention. The bridegroom should be the center of the bride's attention. And John the Baptist says, that's, that's what is happening. And I'm happy with that. My joy is complete. He must increase. I must decrease. I love John the Baptist. Even just those two verses right there. But it wasn't just John the Baptist. Jesus used the same language. He talked about weddings. He started his ministry at a wedding. He gave stories about weddings and feasts and, uh, and uh, guests at weddings and so on. And then as he comes to the end of his ministry, turn one last passage, John 14. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He's come to the end. He knows his time is almost finished. His mission is almost done. And he's telling his disciples that he's leaving. And they're all sad and discouraged. And and you get this beautiful three-chapter section where he pours out his heart and encouragement to them. And it all begins in 14 verse 1 with this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he starts talking in terms that they would not miss. They could not miss. In that culture, it was painfully obvious. Now, for us, it is something we could miss. So let me just explain it. When a man uh, got engaged, in our terms, got betrothed to a woman, all the arrangements would be made, the agreement would be set, and then he would leave her. And he would go back to his father's family house, and, and then he'd build an extension an upper room or an extension room at the back. He would make a space where he could be with his new bride. And so he'd build a house. And if even today you go to Israel, you can see the extensions being built on houses. Same kind of idea. And so he'd build this extension, he'd work at it, and he'd make it the best that he possibly could because this is for his bride. This is for the one that he loves. And then when it was complete and when it was ready, then he would come back. And he would announce his arrival and she, her heart would leap and and he would come and he would sweep her away and there would be this great wedding procession and she would be brought back to their new home and the wedding would be complete and they would now be a fully married couple. And Jesus, speaking to his disciples in verse 2, says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is the language of marriage. Jesus is saying, gentlemen, you're all discouraged and you're all sad because I'm leaving, but it's good that I go. Because I promise I'm coming back to take my bride to be with me forever. If we had time, we could trace example after example after example of this marriage theme tracing itself through the whole of Scripture. The story of the Bible is the story of a marriage. A marriage between God and humanity. God calling a bride for his son and bringing us together with him in a forever relationship. So what? Just as we finish, so what? What difference does that make? What does that mean for us? 
What does it mean for us as a church? I just want to share three thoughts and then I'll close. First of all, we've got to remember that if this is the big story, then Christianity is not about a program. It's about a person. It's not about how we do church and when we do church and, and if we have you know, this or that or, or this uh, refreshment or that refreshment. It's about a person. And we want that to be the case here at Trinity, that Trinity Chippenham is about Jesus. It's not about how we do things or what we do. It's about Jesus. It's not about a program. It's about a person. Number two, as we fix our gaze on him, we will discover that it is his love for us that changes us. As we fix our gaze on Jesus, kind of, I, I like the image of the first dance at a, a wedding reception. As the bride is taken up in the arms of her groom, she fixes her eyes on him and he leads and she just looks and follows. She doesn't resist, she doesn't fight, she doesn't try to take the lead, she doesn't try to take charge. She just follows the lead and there will be times where she feels like she's going to be uh, swept into a table. But if she trusts him, it works if he knows how to dance. And I just want to say Jesus knows how to dance. And as he takes us into his arms, we're invited to fix our gaze on him and trust him, even in the challenges of life, even in the tough moments, even when we feel like it's all about to go wrong, just trust him. Keep our gaze on him and his love will change us. If it's about a marriage, then Christianity is not a program, it's a person. If it's about a marriage, then the way that life and transformation is going to occur is as we keep our gaze fixed on him as Jesus remains central in our church life. And thirdly, as Jesus remains central, our values will increasingly reflect his values. Jesus came into this world on a mission. His mission, I suppose you could say, was to propose. He came to a people that despised him. And he demonstrated God's love for them. Instead of getting down on one knee, he hung on a cross, humiliated, bleeding, naked, in order to propose and say, you know what? I love you more than you could ever love yourself. Will you entrust yourself to me? No contingency plans, no plan Bs, no extra kind of lovers or anything else. Will you entrust yourself fully to me? And if we receive what Christ offers us, then we will find ourselves increasingly concerned for that same mission, that the reason we're here as Trinity Chippenham is to enjoy God, to celebrate Christ, to grow and, and to mature ourselves as a church, but also to reach out to a world that hates God. And in effect, to do matchmaking, to, to share with them the proposal that Jesus has made 2,000 years ago on the cross, to go to a world that thinks that God is full of spite and full of hate and introduce them to a God full of love, to go to a world that themselves are full of hatred for God and present the love of God so that they will be stirred and overwhelmed and some of them will be drawn into the bride of Christ. If the big story of the Bible is that in that day you will call me my husband, if the big story of the Bible is that it's all about a marriage between God and humanity, that means that Jesus needs to be the center of all that we are. And as we look to him, as we fix our gaze on him, he's going to change us and through us, he's going to change the lives of others too. What a privilege 
to be part of the great story, the story of the marriage of God's son and his bride. Let's pray. Father, if, if, we, were to, if we were to try to generate the big story of history, we would never come up with this. You are so gracious, so good, so much more wonderful than we would ever dare to dream. But we just want to say a huge thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he is. Thank you for all that he's done. And thank you that we are invited to know the Lord. And Lord, we just want to entrust ourselves to you. Please, would you help us keep our gaze fixed on him? Let Jesus be the center of all that we are and all that we do as a church. And as you change us, Lord, would you give us the privilege of sharing with others the wonder of the proposal of Jesus on the cross. We pray in his name. Amen.